Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and today I'm talking to one of the busiest women in Edmonton. Bean Gill is the co-founder of the Ryu Paralysis Recovery Center. It's one of just a few in Canada. It's a not-for-profit working to help people with spinal cord injuries increase their function. She started after a virus attacked her spinal cord in 2012. It paralyzed her. But she's working hard to get her mobility back bit by bit. And it's set her on a path to where she's at today, including being one of Edmonton's top 40 under 40. Here's her story. Uh, Bean, this has been quite a run for you now. I mean, the, the RBC's Ones to Watch Award, Miss Wheelchair Canada, Global News Woman of Vision Award. Um, yeah. uh, if, if, if you're at all an ego-driven person, this has got to feel good for the ego. <laughs> It's, you know, it does make me feel good to be recognized for my work. I do work to stay humble because I'm not just doing this for myself. It's for all the people who don't have a voice. Hmm. Where where do you keep the hardware? Um, actually, we just hung up some of the awards <laughs> at Ryu. <laughs> and we might have to get a trophy case soon. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I do want to talk about Ryu and the work you're doing today. I think it's it's really fantastic. Uh, but first, I'd like to get a, a sense into how this all came to be. So sure. Friday the 13th, right? That's a that's a day that's brought up by the superstitious. But, but for you, Friday the 13th has a different significance. Yeah. Um, can you tell me a, a bit about that story? Sure, yeah. Well, my life was changed on a Friday the 13th. It was in 2012. And to, so 2012 was, was, and I hope it stays, the worst year of my life. Mm. Um, in January of 2012, I turned 30, which was all good, had a sweet party and whatever. Um, and then in April 2012, I left my ex-husband after he beat me up for the first and last time. Mm. And, you know, back then I was the type of person who never talked about my feelings or emotions. I always hid everything under the rug and just pretended to be okay. And I would numb my my pain with anything that I could, um, alcohol, food, you know, shopping, whatever it is. Um, so I was kind of like in a false state, false state of, I'm fine, I'm okay, I can deal with all the stuff that's happening and then in June 2012, my dad decided to leave our family. And um, this was a long time coming, but still doesn't make it really easy when it happens. Mm -hmm. And then two weeks later, I was in Vegas. So I went to Vegas for my friend Stagette. I didn't want anything to do with this wedding because I was a bridesmaid and he was a, my ex was a groomsman. Mm -hmm. So I didn't want to go to the wedding. I didn't want to be a part of it, but I for sure wanted to go to Vegas. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so, you know, I was in Vegas. We got there on the Wednesday, partied Wednesday night, shopped all day Thursday, partied Thursday night, woke up on Friday the 13th mm -hmm. and, um, we were going to go to the pool that day. And, um, so I remember just going to the bathroom, brushing my teeth, whatever. I walked over to the window to open the curtains and saw that it was raining outside. And I remember thinking, like, that's weird. When does it rain in Vegas in July? Mm -hmm. um, and then I walked back to my to the bed with my friends, and that was the last time I walked on my own. Um, when I was laying in bed, I had the most excruciating pain I ever felt in my low back, and that lasted a few minutes. Um, and, and I wasn't able to move my right leg. Hmm. So I'm laying there trying to move both my legs, but only my left one is bending. So I'm wiggling my toes, flexing my ankle, trying to move however much I can. And then a couple of minutes later, it went prickly from my hip to my toes. And I was left paralyzed from the waist down. So, so you're lying in bed in Vegas and <laughs> and there's this, this sort of sharp pain in your back and... and yeah. And you can tell that you can't right away that your mobility has changed that you're that you're trying to kind of figure out what's to what you have control of. Well, I didn't really know like what it kind of all happened very fast and it was and slow at the same time. Like my the pain came and it was excruciating like it was just out of the blue and I have a very high pain tolerance but it was really really painful. Um and then I tried like rubbing my back a little bit, tried to move around, right? Because when you're in pain, you try to move, find a comfortable position. And that's when I was, my right leg wouldn't move. Mm. 
does it feel like nerve pain or what's the sensation if you could uh, draw a parallel to something? Uh, it was like, it was very sharp. Yeah. Very sudden, very sharp. And like, it just stayed that sharpness. Do you know, sometimes pain will dull out a little bit. This didn't, it stayed excruciatingly sharp for like a few minutes and then it kind of just dissipated. So what happened next? Well, then I had to call 911. My friends were kind of freaking out. Uh, I was really calm throughout the whole thing. And I'm an x-ray tech. So I was logically thinking about what's happening inside my body. Mm-hmm. So I called 911. Hotel security comes up anytime you call 911. And then the paramedics came. They took me to the hospital. Um, they did a full spine MRI right off the bat. And that came back clear. Everything came back clear, mm-hmm. all of my tests. So you're wondering what's going on. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, you know, the first, like the whole first day when this happened, I really didn't think it was that big of a deal. I'm like, oh, they're just going to give me something and I'm just going to walk out of here. And like, it's no big deal. And I could feel everything. I just couldn't move anything. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until the first night I was in Emerge um, and I overheard the nurses talking and they said that they're waiting for a bed in ICU for me. And that's when I was like, oh, shit, <laughs> you don't go to ICU if everything's okay. Yeah, yeah. Did So when the tests come back clear, uh, did you mm. did you get the sense from any of the doctors that were treating you? I mean, sometimes there might be an inclination then to think that uh, the patient is, like, you know, it's a mind thing, you know, the, the power yep. of the mind um, being yep. Yep. where you, you still have your mobility and it's just, and it's, you know, kind of a mental block. Is that? Yeah, that's what they told me. Did you feel like you weren't maybe believed? Um, no, I think that they believed me, but because everything came back negative, they told me, they said, you know, conversion disorder is what we think you have. And so obviously I had to look up what conversion disorder is. Mm -hmm. And basically it's where you're so stressed out that your brain tells your body to shut down. Mm -hmm. And because of my year being the way it was, and also my whole life, like I, like I said, I never talked about my feelings or emotions, right? And so all of that trauma and all of that hurt and even all of that joy that is inside me, it, it can affect your physical well-being. And so, um, after these, you know, like two very large traumatic things happening to me in 2012, it made sense to me. Yeah. So I was like, yeah. yeah. And because nothing physical was showing up. Right. So yeah, that's when I, when I flew back to Canada, I started seeing a psychologist and honestly, that's the best thing that's happened to me out of this whole thing is I actually dealt with a lot of my emotional stuff that I should have dealt with years ago. Mm. It's actually, you know, I've worked through it and it's, and even all the, the adversity that is still happening to me and that will continue to happen. You know, I have somebody that I trust um, who can help me work through these things and help me always end up on the other side. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to talk a bit more about that perhaps later, but, uh, but for sure. now, when did transverse myelitis become kind of the diagnosis? When when did you get some clarity around that? And um, what is that? Sure. So my um, I didn't have any movement when I was first paralyzed from my waist down. Um, I lost all core control, lost bowel, bladder function, and like had no spasms. Like no, my muscles were melting away really fast. Mm. In about mid-August, my legs started to spasm. And I was really happy because to me, it was like any movement is better than no movement. Right. Yeah. But it was getting to be quite bad where I would go roll my wheelchair over a crack in the sidewalk and I had extensor tone. So that means your quads fire and everything that it extends. So I would either fall backwards out of my chair or slide forward out of it. Oh, okay. And yeah. Yeah, because everything went straight, right? My yeah, legs would yeah. kick straight. My back would go backwards. Yeah. Um. So my family doctor, he was just like, this is not conversion. This is not how it presents. He's like, I'm sending you for another MRI. And by this time, I've already had about 30 MRIs. So I was like, okay, well, none of the other ones showed anything. So why is this one going to show anything? Yeah. And at this point, like, I started to like MRIs. I've had so many. I was like, oh, sweet. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's wrong. This is wrong. <laughs> Anyways, I went for an MRI, and when I got the report, um, like I said, I wasn't expecting to see anything on it, and it said there is a lesion inside the spinal cord at T10, T11, looks like transverse myelitis. So directly translated, 
transverse myelitis means inflammation of the spinal cord Mm -hmm. at whichever level. And mine is at T10, T11. So I went to see my neurologist and I was like, I want to see the MRI. And so he showed me it. And it's kind of like a peanut shape lesion that's actually inside my spinal cord. And he said, the reason why I didn't show up on any of the other ones is because it's like a scar and it took time to develop. So Mm. the disease process happened on July 13th, but it took three months for that scar to form. Had you in your time, because you had worked as an x-ray tech, had you come across anything like this before? Was it familiar, totally unfamiliar? I mean, I've seen people with spinal cord injuries. I've seen people with brain injuries, right? Right. But something like this, no, I hadn't seen. But after it happened to me, I met lots of people who it's happened to. Yeah, yeah. So what does what, what's kind of the, the nuts and bolts of transverse myelitis? How does it uh, take effect in, in the body? So, I mean, medically speaking, it's idiopathic, which means nobody knows why it happens or how, how it happens. Mm. After doing my own research for the last seven and a half years, I believe that it's the Epstein-Barr virus that um, causes it. So transverse myelitis, or TM, is an autoimmune disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, and they say your body is attacking itself, which, okay, cool. Um, but your body is not just going to attack itself if there isn't something there instigating it. And so I've been reading about Epstein-Barr or EBV. It's really, really common. Millions of people have it. Um, usually it has four stages that it goes through. Most of the time it stays in stage two, which remains dormant in your organs. Um, I'm one of the lucky ones where it reach stage four and stage four is where it um, attacks your central nervous system mm. are there stages beyond a stage four is it does it no no so that's, that's no. yeah that's as far as it gets mm. what were the following weeks and, and months like you you get uh, as you're first of all just <laughs> trying to find answers but then you know it's quite a drastic change right to go from yes. uh walking july 12th yeah. and july 13th to then being in a wheelchair and, and trying to, uh, well, having to adjust to a, a totally new reality. Yeah. Um, so after reading the report, I Googled transverse myelitis. And one of the things that's said in there is that, so TM is where you have one lesion, either on your brain or your spinal cord. As soon as you have two lesions, you're diagnosed with MS, mm. um, which is multiple sclerosis, which affects healthy 30-year-old females. And Alberta has the highest rate. And that really hit me hard. And um, that kind of reading that and just getting this news kind of tipped me over the edge into a really deep, dark depression. I wasn't fun to be around. I was not happy. I was very insecure. And I had stopped drinking. I had stopped, you know, putting toxins in my body because I was scared. Mm -hmm. But the one thing I turned to was food. And so I ate everything that was in sight and suddenly gained a lot of weight because when you're sitting and eating, you <laughs> gain a lot of weight really fast. Um, that didn't help with my self-image or my um, self-esteem, which just, you know, made me even more depressed. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned before, I mean, the the, the benefits of seeing a psychologist. I mean, just, just mm-hmm. how valuable was that to have a, a psychologist in that time? And, and what did that offer to you? Uh, I can't put a price on that. You know, I mean, I paid, I've, I've paid her tens of thousands of dollars, I'm sure by now, but the value that I've got from that is, you know, truly finding who I am and not only just that, liking myself and being able to love myself, even though I use a wheelchair, even though half my body doesn't work properly, you know, there's a lot of things that you have to go through to, accept whatever situation you're in and although I still haven't fully accepted it and I don't know if I ever will fully accept it but it definitely helps having somebody who can like really give you the tools that you need like talking to your friends and family is awesome but they often don't know what to say yeah and it's not helpful then right because then you're just venting and then you're still having these emotions and feelings inside and don't know what to do with them so having somebody um like Sharon being able to help me through all this stuff was, like I said, priceless. I recommend everybody see a therapist. What was your experience with 
uh, disability before your mobility changed? Like, did you have a reference point for anyone else in your life or anyone that you could talk to when it did happen that, that someone that got it? I mean, you mentioned it's hard to talk no. to family. Yeah. Yeah. No, I didn't. And, you know, working as an x-ray tech, I've seen people with disabilities for a long time. I was a healthcare aide before that. And so it wasn't something that was in out of my realm of normalcy, but like, Nobody in my circle had a physical disability mm-hmm. and I didn't know, really know anything about it other than like the medical aspect of it. And, um, after it happened to me, like I also fell through the cracks of the medical system and I didn't get to the Glenrose until February, 2013. So I spent seven months at home isolated from other people with disabilities. And, you know, anytime my friends would take me out, We'd go to restaurants, we'd go to clubs, we'd go to movies. I would never see anybody in a wheelchair or Mm. anybody with a disability. And that just kind of makes you further like, oh my God, am I really the only one? Like, (laughs) I can't be. Like, statistically, (laughs) this doesn't make sense. Right, right. Right? Yeah. But when you never see anybody out and about, you're like, maybe I am the only one. Until I went to California. And then when I went to California, there was like, 15, 20 people in wheelchairs out and about. And I was just like, oh my God, where the hell am I? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you mentioned the, the Glen Rose there. Is that a, that's a mm. place in, in Edmonton or Alberta? Yeah. So it's, it's in Edmonton. It's the rehab hospital here. Um, so basically when you have any kind of traumatic injury, you go through your acute care hospital where you get your surgery and they stabilize you. And then oftentimes you will wait for a bed to open up in the rehab hospital. And so, like I said, I only got there because of my diagnosis in October, kicked off a whole round of doctor's appointments and specialist appointments, and that's how I got into the Glenrose. Mm-hmm. It was in the Glenrose that my paradigm shifted and then my whole life changed. I was, you know, I've up until then, I'd always felt very sorry for myself. Mm-hmm. And I mean, sometimes I still feel sorry for myself, but then it was all day, every day. Why did this happen to me? What did I do to deserve this? Um, why am I suffering? And right, other right. people aren't. And so when I was at the Glen Rose, I met my roommate who, it was like talking to a mirror. You know, the same kind of thing happened to her. We were the same age. Um, it really helped having her there. And then one day we were having lunch and there was a girl sitting there and she's a very high level quadriplegic. She was in a car accident with the moose and so she's sitting there unable to move anything her mom's feeding her and she's like will either of you guys walk again and my roommate she's like this bitch will and like (laughs) we laughed and wherever right but I was overcome with guilt and you know the next sentence that came out of my friend's mouth she said well I'd be happy if I could move a fucking finger Mm. and I was like oh okay bean you're not allowed to feel sorry for yourself anymore. Right. Like I have so much to be grateful for. And I, uh, I had so much mobility. And back then, like I wasn't independent, but I knew I would be, I wasn't walking or standing, but I knew I would be. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, just the fact that I have my hands and my arms is huge. And I, I write that in my gratitude journal on a weekly basis because I am so grateful for my hands and the mobility that I do have because there are so many people that don't have it. And so I try to, that's when my mentality shifted and I became grateful for what I had and not sad about what I lost. Yeah. And you know what? My whole world changed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because I'm guessing, I mean, working as an x-ray tech, you, you see and you're interacting with people in wheelchairs or who've had, you know, nerve damage. And it's one thing to work with someone, but you probably don't think it's going to happen to you. Right. And then yeah, of course. And, and then to then adjust to that. What 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 were the things that you took for granted that you had to figure out? <laughs> so much. So much. Going to the bathroom, digesting food, uh, laughing, coughing, sneezing. My diaphragm was affected, so I couldn't I was really scared of choking because I could not cough. Mm. Um just standing, being eye level with people. Um so many things that I took for granted before walking, running stairs, uh, yeah. kickboxing. I miss doing a roundhouse <laughs> kick. I was so good at it. <laughs> Driving standard. <laughs> okay. All these things. Yeah. So, so one, one, just one concrete example, laughing, like how, how does laughing change or how did laughing change initially that you had to, um, 
Well, physically, because my diaphragm was affected and all of my abdominal muscle, muscles uh, were paralyzed. Yeah. Right? And when you laugh, it's your core. Your muscles contract your and your diaphragm contracts and that's how you laugh. That's how you sneeze. That's how you cough. Right. Right. And so my laughs were very like shallow and very quiet. And my sisters used to laugh at me all the time. And then we'd <laughs> laugh even harder because my laugh was so stupid. Yeah. <laughs> Just, you know, small things that and, you know, I had to learn how to do everything I had over again. I had to learn how to brush my teeth. I had to learn how to sit up, how yeah. to take a shower. How do I what happens when you fall? You can't just get back up again. Yeah, yeah. You no. Know? So you were a, an active kickboxer before yeah. before uh, being in a wheelchair. What what was that adjustment like to go from being a, an active person to finding, well, new ways of being active? Uh, it's a huge adjustment, right? It's just, you have to get used to your new normal. It's things that. And this, it takes a long time. This took me almost, almost a year. You know, I was very active. I've been working out since I was 12. But as soon as I was paralyzed, I lost all my knowledge of working out. Like I totally forgot everything. And I put all of my faith in my physiotherapist and my doctor and stuff. And I mean, that's, you know, not what should have happened. Mm. And so when I, like now I box. I'm like, yeah, I can't kick anymore, but I box. And I was, I had joined the UFC gym here in Sherwood Park. Um, and I would stand up and I would use like a walker and I would box standing. And then for when they would do kicking, I would try kicking too. And I could kick under the bag. And I'm like, one day I'm going to kick that side of that bag. <laughs> but <laughs> under will suffice right now. <laughs> There's a, you know, any kind of rehabilitation is often to focus on, on small victories uh, of any mm -hmm. kind. Uh, I mean, mm -hmm. they're, they're probably more bigger than small victories but what were the what were the victories that you were focusing on the, the steps that you were looking to kind of progress and, and check off well the first one I will never forget because um, I had no movement right so I was always trying to think of doing something and I was always thinking of wiggling my toes and so one day I was laying in bed wiggling my toes thinking about it and I'm like I'm pretty sure I'm doing it rip the covers over whip my head around and yeah my big toe was wiggling and that was the first sign of movement, voluntary movement that I had seen since my paralysis. And so that was a huge milestone. From then, my hip, my right hip started internally, externally rotating. I started, it was able to contract my left abs. I remember when I first felt my butt muscles, like that's a huge thing. Um, <laughs> and my hamstrings, once my, when my hamstrings started coming back, first it, it was really annoying because I would wake up with my foot attached to my butt, like my hamstrings were so tight. Uh, yeah. But, you know, double-edged sword, right? <laughs> right, right. So um, give me a sense a bit about what the, the prospects are like for someone, and maybe it's different kind of case by case, but with transverse myelitis, what the prospect mm -hmm. is for, for nerve kind of regeneration and, and um, your outlook for, I mean, prospects of, of walking, running, et cetera. Um, well, I think anybody with any kind of central nervous system damage has potential to recover and potential for nerve uh, regeneration. Mm -hmm. It's slow and painful, but it can happen. Um, with TM specifically, I mean, statistically, they say 33% of people recover fully, 33% of people recover partially, and 33% don't recover at all. I believe uh, that I will recover fully and I feel like every single person going through anything has to believe in themselves right. if they want to achieve anything. Um, when this will happen, nobody knows. But right. um, as long as you keep trying and you keep thinking about your muscles because it's your mind-body connection that's going to make that muscle move. Mm. And so you, it's, a, it's really a lot of brain work. Um, I mean – at Ryu, often our clients leave here with headaches because their heads hurt from thinking so much. Yeah, but yeah. it sounds like it it's it's a, an act of taking kind of what what might have formerly been subconscious thought and turning it to, mm -hmm. into very intentful, like things that you yes. just do uh, without thinking about it, and then having yeah. to having to think think really consciously about them. Yeah, that's like with walking, right? I mean, as a everybody, when you're a toddler, you learn how to walk, and then you never think about it again. Right. And then when that's taken away from you and you have to relearn how to do it, it is muscle by muscle. It's joint by joint. You have to think about each thing 
that is happening. And like walking is very complex Mm. and takes a lot of coordination because it's a lot of turning one muscle on and turning the other one off simultaneously. Mm -hmm. It's like driving a standard with this clutch and the gas. When did your advocacy begin? Pretty much as soon as the day I got disabled. (laughs) (laughs) Because nothing is designed for people with disabilities, especially here in Edmonton. Mm. It's, it's, It's all right. It's technically accessible. But I mean, there's sidewalks everywhere. There's six inch curbs everywhere. The curb cuts are few and when they are there they're usually covered in snow or yeah. ripped up yeah um just there's so many things that aren't accessible and at first i would didn't have a vocal voice i cried a lot and i took everything personally that because this place isn't accessible they don't want me here mm. and i mean sometimes i still kind of feel like that but you know, like I said, I was very insecure and I didn't like myself. So if I didn't like myself, how could I expect anybody else to? And that really got into my head. And so that's why I wouldn't say anything to these businesses. I would cry and I would go home and that's it. Mm. But now, and I mean, it took me a couple of years to really find my voice. And I mean, now I'm just sick and tired of it. Yeah. I'm tired of things not being accessible. I'm tired of the attitudinal barriers that people have. Right now, to me, it feels it's a choice that you're making. Yeah. And it's almost 2020. Like, why are we still thinking like it's 1950? Right. Right. Right? Yeah. So what did you start with in terms of, you know, advocating for change? What, what were the first things that, um, that you wanted to change and, and that you've seen some results in? Um. So there's different programs that I wanted to access, different types of, you know, fitness and stuff. So I was an avid yogi before being paralyzed, and that's what I wanted to get back into. I'm like, I want to see if I can do yoga. Um, I want to, you know, but finding a yoga business that would be accepting of me and my wheelchair was very difficult. Mm -hmm. I got turned down by a lot of businesses, even the ones I used to go to when I was able-bodied because they just didn't know what to do with me. And because people don't know how to talk to people with disabilities, I would often just get shut down first and foremost. Yeah. And, you know, that's, I mean, for somebody like me who I'm not going to give up, I am going to reply to your email and I'm going to correct the situation. But there are a lot of people who, if you say no to them once, that's it. They're never going to try again. Right. You've closed that door forever, right? And it's because of fear, because you're afraid of, you're afraid of me, you're afraid of my wheelchair, you're afraid that I'm going to need your help, and you're afraid of the unknown. And so that was one of the first things that I, that kick-started my advocating, I guess. Boxing is another one. It's really hard to find a gym that's accessible. And uh, so anyways, I created, I opened my own gym and I'm doing an adapted yoga class and I'm doing an adapted boxing class. <laughs> so whatever. All the, all the <laughs> things that you want to see to take it yeah. upon yourself to, to bring. Uh, you mentioned people, people don't know how to talk to people with, with disabilities. Uh, I mean, what, yeah. what, do you, what do you notice in people? What do people get wrong or they don't realize if they're not in a wheelchair? Yeah, um, well, I, I get this question a lot. Like, how do you talk, how do I talk to somebody with a disability? And the answer is really simple. The same way you would talk to somebody without a disability. Right. You would ask them what their name is. You would ask them where they're from. What do they do for a job? Do, are they into sports? Right? Have you seen this movie? That's how you would talk to any other able-bodied person. Right. A disabled person is the same. We still go to movies. We still want to have fun. We still have jobs. We still have names. We still have personalities. We have hobbies. Right? Yeah. And so it's just that... Um, I don't know. I don't know where the stigma started, but it's there. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I taught, I talked to a daycare a class of preschoolers on Tuesday. And I said to them, if you want to know why someone is in a wheelchair, you can go and ask them. You just have to know how to ask, right? You can ask somebody, Hey, like, excuse me, why are you in a wheelchair? Why are you using this mobility device? What you don't say is what's wrong with you. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's your words that you choose. I mean, people come up to me all the time and thinking that they're complimenting me, but actually insulting me. Uh, and, yeah. you know, I don't say anything because I know it's not coming from a place of malintent. I know they're saying it because it makes them feel better and they think it's going to make me feel better. Right. 
but actually like no not make me feel better right and is and that's the that would i'm guessing be the sort of the you're an inspiration type of thing or or you're so brave I mean, or this or that yeah and for doing daily tasks right. right i've had people come up to me in the grocery store and be like good for you for being outside good job right I'm like are you for real man <laughs> <laughs> like dude i do more in my day than you do in a week okay right, right. <laughs> and it's just you know um you know it's just how people are. And like I said, it does not come from a place of malintent, right? But because we don't see people with disabilities in our daily lives, it's sort of that forbidden, that unknown, and I don't know, and the fear. So like, um, you know, I'm a kid magnet. Kids are drawn to me. Mm -hmm. And it's always the parents who are like, no, 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 no. Don't say anything. Don't ask her anything. And then as soon as the kid gets that reaction from their parent, that's where the fear starts. Mm. Like, okay, I'm going to associate people with disabilities with I'm getting in trouble. No. Right, right. Yeah. Right? And I will say to the parent, like, I would rather your kid come ask me what happened. I tell them the truth. Then you go around the corner and lie to them. Because that's what's going to happen. And you're also starting the stigma here that you have. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I mean, I guess, you know, there are people out there who have disabilities who do get offended and who do get who aren't in the best moods all the time. And so I get like why people are apprehensive. But the majority of us are normal people. And like, you know, I don't mind sharing my story because if it happened to me, it can happen to anybody. Right. And the way we get rid of the stigma and stuff is by educating people. And by educating, we have to talk to them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how does Hollywood do in all of this? Or how does the media in general do? Do you find examples in, in movies, television that are helping or hindering? It's getting better for sure than what it was. Um, Hollywood hires able-bodied people to play people with disabilities. Mm. There are plenty of people with disabilities who have great acting abilities. Right. So that's a big, huge barrier that like, needs to change yeah, right yeah but again there's that giant stigma there things are changing and things are getting better and we're being more inclusive but there's so much room for growth on on a local level like i have one of my clients she's in theater and you know she created her own play based on her experience growing up with a disability in the theater world and being ostracized from every community, even the theater community who is supposed to be open and accepting and welcoming. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's, a, like I said, there's a lot of attitudinal barriers and I feel like it is kind of geographical um, to some degree, but you know, when you're in a small town or like, I mean, Edmonton is like a small town city. It's not like a big bustling city, but even Vancouver and Toronto still have the stigma and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. And, and it's just a, I don't know, city by city, I think it would take being in a wheelchair to necessarily notice it. I mean, I notice it mm -hmm. only from time to time after, you know, conversations with someone to then think about mm -hmm. what are the curb cuts like in a, in a general place or what are the, what are the entrances to a building like? Um, the, you know, what's a what's Edmonton like or what's an average other place like in terms of, of how well they do about making it easy to get around? Uh, you know, Edmonton's okay. They are not the best. Um, but so I've been to Invermere, BC yep. and they are actually very accessible. And that's because there was a woman on their city council for nine years who was a wheelchair user. Mm -hmm. So she made sure like downtown Invermere, there is an accessible parking stall on every single block. Um, it's clearly marked. All the curb cuts are extra wide and very sloped actually to grade. And when they hit the street, there's no um, one centimeter lip there. It is flush with the road. Yeah. That's an actual curb cut. It's painted differently so people with visual impairments can tell the difference between a curb cut and the sidewalk. Yeah. There's just so many small things that they have done. And they're in the BC mountains. Yep. So if they can be accessible, we can be accessible too. Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny you mentioned Invermere. I was just there a number of weeks ago, uh, so I can picture okay. what you're what you're talking about. Um, but it's it's it sounds like uh, I mean it's it's a uh, it's it should be a no brainer. But again, a reason why you know we should have more diverse uh, people making decisions about things, <laughs> people with different backgrounds and experiences. That's that's how you yep. come up with a, a place like Invermere where where they've thought about that. 
You don't get that yep. from from everybody having the same perspective, you know, a room full of people who look the same. You're not going to get that yep. kind of result. Yep, I agree. When did the gratitude journal start for you? When did when did you start doing that? Oh, that was a few years ago I started. I started with the five minute journal and um, it's just a really good way to like, you know, practice and create a good habit for yourself. Mm -hmm. And so when I started doing it, you know, like you, you kind of start with just the generic stuff. I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for my, you know, for my mobility, whatever. And then once you run out of the big things, you're okay. Like, what am I actually grateful for? So when you look in your day, you're like, well, what am I, what am I going to be grateful for today? Right. Oftentimes I write plumbing. I'm very grateful for indoor heating. (laughs) I'm very grateful for like water to drink, clean water to drink, you know, things that people like, like all of us take for granted. I'm very grateful for my eyesight, for my hearing, for my sense of smell, for my sense of taste, for my hands, for the mobility I have. I'm grateful for my bladder control, you know, so many things. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, I started a few years ago. I do it every single day. It really helps me stay grounded and it helps me, um, helps me look through my day to really be like, what am I grateful for? Mm -hmm. Is this something that you started uh, after TM? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So so it's (laughs) it's been kind of part of the part of the new habits forming, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ryu, your paralysis recovery center, you Mm co-founded this place. Yes, I did. How did that come to be? Um, So like I said, when I was, you know, paralyzed the first year, so when I was in the Glen Rose and my paradigm shifted, I found out about a place in California called Project Walk. And it's a spinal cord injury recovery center. So my mom and I ended up there in July of 2013. And, you know, up until then, I have a lot of extensor tone. So anytime I would stand, I would always stand on my tippy toes because my calves are so tight mm-hmm. um, that my heels don't go down. And so... I went through about 20 to 30 physios while I was in Edmonton and not one could get my ankles to 90 degrees with my legs straight. And so when I was in California, I was doing three hours a day. And at the end of the first week on the Friday, they had me standing on my flat feet. And I was like, okay, I'm sold. Uh What you guys are doing is working. All right. I believe it. And I knew I was going to get a home program from them. All the trainers there are kinesiologists or exercise therapists So I Googled the U of A, found the faculty of phys ed, emailed the practicum coordinator, and he sent out all of my information like a job posting to the whole faculty. And one of I got about 12 responses back. And one of them was from Nancy, who has always wanted to do this, but didn't know she could do it in Canada. Hmm. And so when I came back from California, we met, I interviewed her and I ended up hiring her and another girl because I was doing six days a week. So they were working three days each, and they would help me carry out my home program. And that is when my recovery skyrocketed. Six months later, I went back to California for five weeks, and Nancy came with me for the last week, and we did the Train Your Trainer program. Mm -hmm. She got certified by them, and then that was kind of the confidence boost she needed to really be like, okay, what I'm doing is correct. I know what I'm doing because here no one's doing it. So it's hard to like ask somebody like, Hey, am I doing this right? And so down there she got that validation. And when we came back, we kicked it into high gear and um, like she was still a student. And so anybody that I would meet on my journey, I'm like, you need to work out with Nancy. So she was going around to people's houses and training them while going to school. And we started to see a need here. And when I was in California, I had brought home the franchise papers needed to open a project walk here in, Ca- in Canada. Mm-hmm. But, you know, my, I wasn't in the right headspace at that time. And the universe was just like, no, this is not the right time to do <laughs> So I'm like, okay. So I went through the motions, whatever, right? Still continue to work out with Nancy. My progress continued to continue to grow as it does today. And in 2016, she said you know, we got to do something worthwhile here. And so that's when we were like, okay, let's do this. So we found a marketing agency to take us on, gave us our name and our tagline. We got our logo donated. We started fundraising. Um, We registered as a nonprofit organization. Mm -hmm. And um, by April of 2017, we were up and running. (laughs) 
I mean, starting as a nonprofit or starting a nonprofit organization, starting mm-hmm. anything, co-founding something, that's a, that's a very time-intensive, effort-intensive thing to yeah. do. Yeah, you, uh, you betcha. <laughs> why, why take that on? Why, why was that important for you? And how, why has that been important for you to do? Um, so I think that's one of the reasons why I was paralyzed. Right. Mm. So in the beginning, I was always asking, why did this happen to me? What did I do to deserve this? Why me? Fast forward to 2016. I'm like, okay, this is why this happened to me. Because I've met two other people who tried opening a center here in Edmonton and couldn't get it off the ground. And I'm like, you know what? I'm like, this, this is my rule. This is why this happened to me. I meant to change the face of disability. Um, I meant to open a center here in Edmonton where I can not only help myself, but help so many other people as well. And to change the stigma of disability. And at the same time, I need, we need to change the healthcare system and to change the mentality of the medical system towards spinal cord injury. Mm. What, what needs to change in the healthcare system? Uh, the mentality. There's a lot of attitudinal barriers in the healthcare system because doctors, not all, don't believe that the nervous system can repair itself because that's what they're taught in school. Mm. And, you know, especially doctors who have been doctors for 10, 20, 30 years, it's ingrained in your brain that you're not going to get anything back. And so when they have somebody with a spinal cord injury who comes in, one of the first things they say to them is, you're never going to walk again. Talk about a, such so, a limiting thing to hear from somebody. I mean, when somebody gets diagnosed with cancer, do some, does the oncologist go in there and say, well, you're going to die? Right, right. No, they're, taught with, they're talked to with compassion, not in spinal cord injury world. Hmm. And that's what needs to change. Because as soon as you tell somebody that, or you're, it's a constant, you're never going to do this, you're never going to do that, you have to learn how to do it this way, you're never going to do this. And as soon as, you know, like if you don't have a strong mentality, which most people don't when you're in that situation, when you're freshly paralyzed, you're in a very vulnerable state mm-hmm. and when you're constantly being broken down and told no, 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 no. It kills a lot of people's will to live. And that's why the suicide rate is what it is. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, that's one of the things that comes, right? Is, is suicide rates going up. Yep. Uh, are there... How do we how do we fix that? Is that a communal response that it's about finding support groups for people in that vulnerable state where that you can you can see other people in that situation and, and have people who who get you, who know what's going on? Is it mm-hmm. about retraining doctors? Is it a, is it that everything. and much more? Yes, everything. I mean, the support groups, yes, for sure. Um, that's one of the reasons why we opened Reu is because I went through so many of my dark times alone mm. and that's very scary. And I don't want anybody else to have to go through their dark times alone because here we understand, we know what you're going through. And if I don't understand it, definitely one of my clients or my friends will. Mm-hmm. And, um, as far as the doctors are concerned, yes, they need to be retrained. And I get it that they're not allowed to say, yes, you will recover. Yes, this will come back. Right. But they can say, I don't know. Yeah. And just by simply saying, I don't know, people will still want to live. But then that's also where egos come into play. How can you be a good doctor and not know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's a lot of factors here. There's, you know, but I feel like things are changing here in Edmonton, which is awesome because things do need to change. And as soon as you give somebody hope, they will want to live. And when somebody wants to live, they will. Mm-hmm. And that's how the world changes. But until we change our attitude and the way we talk to people yeah. and the way we look at them, that's not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, I imagine hearing a person like you hearing, you're not going to walk again. For some people, that's just going to be fuel, right? That's going to be like, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll show you. Uh, yeah. But uh, but as a general practice, not the best thing to tell somebody. No. Um what about the public speaking side of things? When did you get into speaking, being an ambassador for, you know, for the Rick Hansen Foundation? Oh, that was, that happened in about 2014, late 2014. I just saw on one, I think it was their Facebook page or something that they were looking for ambassadors. And so I was like, yeah, that's something I want to do. So I ended up doing that. Um, the public speaking started with me talking at um, the U of A for a class of OTs about sexuality. 
mm-hmm. and disability. Mm-hmm. And this was in my second year of being just dis- like being paralyzed. Yeah. And I was not comfortable at all talking about <laughs> any of this stuff. And I, the only reason I did it is because my friend, she was originally supposed to speak and she double booked herself and she called me and she was begging me. And I was like, Oh my God, man, no, I can't do this. <laughs> and she's like, please, you have to. And I'm like, Oh my God. Okay. So then I did it. And I'm like, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm going to talk to all these strangers about this. Right. But you know what? It was really good. It was really good for me because these strangers are going to be the future healthcare practitioners. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, as awkward as it was, it was, it was good. Now I've done it for you. I can do it every year and this is upcoming on five years now. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, sexuality and disability, other, another huge area yeah. of probably misunderstanding, right? Where people have all sorts of yep. maybe ideas or again, just don't know, Yeah. but a, an important thing to talk about. For sure. And that's, we have, I've had three sex talks here at Ryu where we bring in a sex expert, we bring in, we brought in the owner of Tickle Trunk, which is a toy store, and she does a lot of work with people with disabilities, um, because sex is something that is normal for humans, right. and um, is often thought of as taboo. Um, and as soon as somebody has a disability, you're often thought of as asexual. Mm-hmm. You don't need compassion, you don't need um, pleasure, you don't need intimacy, you don't need cuddles. Right. But like, that's not true. We're still regular people. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Things just happen to you. And so that's why I feel like, you know, we have to talk about the things that nobody wants to talk about. It's awkward, but whatever. Just do it. Mm -hmm. Tell me about how Ryu has grown from when it started to where you're at today. Um, Yeah. So the growth has been exponential. We started with a shared facility with the Parkinson Association of Alberta. We were renting the gym space from them. We outgrew that space in about six months, but we stayed there for 18 months because we had to. We, it allowed us to save up our money and build up our clientele. Um, just last November, last year, we moved into our own facility on the west end here of Edmonton. Um, it started, Ryu started with just Nancy and I as staff members, and mm-hmm. this year we have eight people on staff. Mm-hmm which is pretty cool. Our client base has grown. I mean, right now we're at about 130 and we have a wait list, which is incredible. Um, there's, it just speaks to the need. And there are so many people with disabilities, not only in Edmonton, we get people from all over Alberta and Northern BC who need this kind of therapy. And um, so, yeah, we are continually growing. Our plan is to have our own freestanding um, state-of-the-art facility in the next 10 years and we're going to do it. When you were looking to get this started and you were, I'm imagining looking at other models like this elsewhere, like was, were there Mm -hmm. much, was there much of this elsewhere in Canada that you could look to for, for picking somebody else's brain about it? Or was it all California? Like, like how, how does the rest of Canada do with recovery centers like this? Well, Canada's kind of in the dark ages where it comes to a lot of things. Um, Neuro rehab is one of those things. And in Canada, we are one of five centers all across Canada. Um, California has more than eight just Mm -hmm. in California. Mm -hmm. So like that just shows you the numbers, right? I mean, um, and I've been to almost all the centers in Canada except for the ones on the East Coast, but we talked to them, right? I've talked to all of the owners and before we opened Ryu and said, hey, this is what we're trying to do. Can you help me out? What are some of the things that you learned? What are mistakes you made? And everyone's really open and we all try to help each other. I openly refer people to other centers in Canada if they're close by there. Um, because like I, like I don't consider anybody competition because I feel like there's enough people with disabilities all over the world that need help. And so if we can work together to better our systems and stuff, then why not? Right. What's the, the best part of your job today? Oh, my clients for sure. <laughs> Seeing the milestones that they achieve and like on a daily basis, miracles are happening here. And it's it's incredible to watch, especially with our little kids. I mean, these are kids that doctors said, you know, they're never going to move. They're never going to do this. One of our little kids took her first steps here earlier this year. Just last month, one of our kids said mama. Hmm. Like it's it's incredible to see when you believe in somebody and you give them hope and you give them the tools they need, how they blossom and how they grow. And like, even with our adults being able to hold a plank, one of our clients is walking up and down stairs. Like it's crazy. Mm -hmm. 
it's awesome. It fills my heart. Yeah, I, I, that that's got to be pretty special to to be yeah. around uh, people like that. Um, yeah. What excites you about the field of of neuro recovery right now? There's so much to be excited about right now. The tech, the rate at which technology is changing is is kind of scary. But um, we're as far as spinal cord injury recovery is concerned, it's it's pretty incredible. There is actually a study happening here at the University of Alberta where they're implanting little wires into the spinal cord to send impulses into the gray matter. So, you know, there's, um, you know, there's a high profile hockey player, Ryan, who went to Thailand to get the epidural stimulator. And it's incredible because these people are seeing results almost instantaneously. Mm. It's not that they're walking right away. You know, my friend Steve, he has the epidural stimulator as well. And he's able to now, he has ankle function where he never had ankle function for the last nine years. Yeah. Right. And like, um, so it's, it's really exciting right now because I believe that the epidural stimulator and these, these kind of stim machines that go into the spinal cord are on its way to being the cure for paralysis. Yeah. along with rehab, along with everything else that's entailed with it. But it's really exciting. Do you still keep in touch with uh, your friends that you mentioned from when you were at, was it Rose, Glen Rose? No, the Glen Rose. Yeah. The Glen Rose. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, actually, Oksana, she was the, she's the girl, the quadriplegic. Yeah. She is on our board of directors at Ryu. Because Ryu wouldn't have happened if I hadn't have met her. And yeah. my friend, my roommate Erica, she, yeah, we still talk all, like not all the time, but we're still in contact. And she doesn't live in Edmonton, but, you know, yep, she's still in part of my life. Yeah. And I try to grow my circle of wheelie friends every day, Try, you know, try to make everybody feel included. And I want... I want as many friends as I can get because everybody deserves to have a really good friend. Mm. What if uh, we're coming to the end of, you know, the 2010 decade now, uh, mm -hmm. approaching a new decade. Uh, if you have a, if you're a resolution type, if, if you have a resolution for, not necessarily for yourself, but for what your hope for this field of, of neuro recovery, your hope for the medical field in general, or, or just uh, accessibility across Canada, mm -hmm. um, how you hope things to change 2020 onward. I hope to see big change coming very soon um, with it all, with the physical barriers that are in place, as well as the attitudinal barriers um, in every aspect. You know, the medical field has no choice but to change as technology changes. And along with that, like, you know, I feel like everything will change. It's going to be a huge fight. It's going to take a lot of effort and it's going to take a lot of people to do it. But I know that we have the power to make these changes. And um, as many bad things are happening in the world, there's a lot of good things happening too. And if we focus on those, it makes it easier to make these changes happen. Hmm. Thanks so much for sharing your time. I really appreciate no it. No problem. Thank you for having me. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening. And I hope you liked it. If you enjoyed the show, do me a favor, hit subscribe, leave a rating and a review. Best of all, tell someone else you think might like it. And if you love the show, if you want to support in some way, head to the shop section. There's merch available there. It helps the show continue to run. If you want to get in touch, a few ways you can. You can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. You can also find me on Twitter at martin underscore bauman. Theme music for Story Untold is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Artwork is adapted from Akosh Nema. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was a Story Untold. See you next time. Mm -hmm.